Welcome to the Partners Financial Podcast, a podcast designed for you with insights from fellow members as well as NFP and Partners Financial experts. I'm Kristen Boulat, and I'm excited to be joined by Armstrong Robinson, who is the Chief Advocacy Officer for Finseca. You have seen Army give us Washington updates many times before, and he's here today to do the same. Um, so, Army, thanks for joining us. We're going to have sort of a freewheeling discussion of what's happening in Washington. What sort of updates do you have for us? What are we watching? What do we need to be aware of? Um, you know, where what's coming down the pike? So, thanks so much for your time today, Army. So glad to be with you today, Kristen, and glad to be part of the NFP family. Thanks so much. So, shall we jump right in and talk about timing? It's always the thing that people want to hear, right? When's it going to happen? When's it going to happen? When, the, when are they going to do the deal? And what are the effective dates going to be? <laughs> What's uh, the deal going to be? Tell us all the things. Let me get my magic eight ball. <laughs> uh, you know, we're recording this on June 25th, I think is today's date. Mm -hmm. uh, so just this week, President Biden announced his support for the infrastructure deal, negotiating with that bipartisan group of senators. Um, so there's some real momentum as of today to getting that done. But as John Cornyn, the senator, your senator from Texas, told us in our event about two and a half weeks ago, the problem with the Senate gang negotiation is that the 21 who negotiated it feel pretty good about it. And that leaves 79 who didn't participate, that aren't necessarily particularly pleased about getting left out of it and being told, this is the sandwich, eat it. And so careful observers watched President Biden's press conference and Senator Schumer, Schumer, Senator Schumer from New York, who's the Democratic leader in the Senate, talked that same day about the need to move this bipartisan infrastructure package in parallel or combination with the partisan reconciliation package. And there's a bit of tea leave reading about precisely what he meant there. Um, but as soon as you do that, it puts cracks and pressure on that bipartisan group because they agreed to this piece of it and they want to surround it with this other huge construct. Um, so we got a long way to go. I did a memo for the team here at Fonseca uh, at the end of April, and the fastest they can go from beginning to end on a reconciliation process is eight weeks, and that would be absurd. Um, and so what you see as you begin looking, translating that into the calendar is um, it's remotely possible they can do this against a September 30th timeline, but it's far more likely in the end that they do it in the fourth quarter of this year. There will be pieces along the way. Um, that bipartisan infrastructure deal, the list of pay-fors doesn't really include any issues of major concern to the profession. Um, and so we're really continue to be focused about the partisan deal and what they might do to the C rate and the cap gains and the estate tax and that whole uh, bucket of things. But um, that's the legislative timing. I still think uh, it's possible early. We'll be prepared early, but you're looking at more likely Christmas time. Um, as you know, I think since the last time we talked, the president's green book, his tax explanations has come out. And on the cap gains changes, uh, the effective date on that proposed by the president is April 28th. Um, okay, so past the window. I'm gonna I'm gonna have you go back to a couple of things if we could. So remind us of the 
reconciliation, the partisan reconciliation, and why September 30th is important? What does Biden hope to include in the partisan reconciliation, and why September 30th? Well, so September 30th, again, is only, that's the end of the federal fiscal year, but um, the truth is he can, it's not a marker for reconciliation. He'll be able to move on either side of that. It's just, a, it's like choosing which car he's going to drive in. Um, but uh, if he doesn't do the reconciliation now before September 30th, if he does it now, does he get to do another one on starting in October because it's a new fiscal year or does it not make a difference? He will, um, he will like the, the total he will get in the first two years of his presidency is the max of three. Okay. The first one for the $1.9 trillion, uh, yeah, $1.9 trillion uh, COVID package that mm -hmm. was February, March. Um, and so he's got two more, the Democrats have two more they can use. Um, it's next year's budget, and they can do next year's budget into next year because the okay. nine was this year's budget. Mm -hmm. Are you know already six months into the fiscal year, and then they'll have they can do the year after that's budget if they really need a third one. Okay, so this one is the what he was calling the human infrastructure part of it, part of his plan. Well, that's that's that is the multi-trillion dollar question, Kristen. Is it? Um, is there room for two packages, this bipartisan infrastructure package, which would not be under reconciliation, they would work to get 60 votes in the Senate for that. Um, and then they move a reconciliation package afterwards with all the other items the president wants, human infrastructure, climate change, um, you know, just a lot more of the spending and the taxation, right? The Republicans have been clear, they are not willing to negotiate about uh, repealing parts or changing parts of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. So the pay-for list that everybody's looking at in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times today, includes none of that. Right. But Democrats still very much want to adjust the corporate rate, the individual rate, et cetera. And that will be in that partisan reconciliation package. And that's the 51 vote construct. Okay. But it also needs to be more, it's a budgetary neutral thing, right? So that's why we have all of the tax changes that are part of that reconciliation, right? It doesn't have to be budget neutral, but it will have to fit whatever budget resolution they have. As you may recall, in 2017, the Republicans used this reconciliation process and the budget they wrote said they could lose 1.5 trillion. Okay. And that's then they had to hit that target. So new mm -hmm. budget reconciliation, you do a budget first that sets the top line numbers that you have to live within. And then you write the legislation that fits that afterwards. Okay. That's the Perfect. Resolution, then the, the reconciliation vehicle. So that's why we the reconciliation we watch more closely for sweeping tax changes. That's right. And that's where the progressive energy is. And that's why Schumer was saying they might need to move together because Bernie Sanders, Elizabeth Warren, uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez are saying, well, I'm not I don't really want to do this bipartisan deal for the hard infrastructure mm -hmm. and not get my progressive stuff. Right. If I got to work with them, they got to work with me. And it's mm -hmm. all my favorite my famous line, right? Like the vote count will dictate what the final bill is. Unless you can produce 218 in the House and in this case, 51 in the Senate, you get no-go and the, the, you know, there's no margin to work with. Okay, so that's important, that's helpful. That's why our industry should care about infrastructure, not just bridges and roads because we like to drive our cars safely, but also because 
those two things are going to work together that could generally drive the tax changes that That's we're worried right. about. That's okay. Right. So then the other thing I wanted to ask you to circle back around to before we move on is the green book, because weirdly, not all of our listeners are tax nerds like me or politics nerds like you. So let's remind everybody what the green book is and how um, controlling or not controlling it is and, and why we pay attention to the green book. Uh, the Green Book is the president or administration's opening offer. Think of it as a negotiation. It's the first detailed term sheet being offered, and it's only a proposal. Uh, so many of you have tuned into your Finseca uh, webinars uh, and other things. You've heard Jeff Rochetti and myself at different points say the president's proposal is focused on the cap gains regime that we've talked a lot about in the past, uh -huh. step up in basis, et cetera. Um, we think in the end, that's pretty hard to do, uh -huh. but that was what was in the green book. That's what the president has proposed. Congress and the vote count will dictate what the final bill looks like. And we think it's more likely that they go in a different direction, but the green book is the, the opening offer of detail. Okay, perfect. And so the things in the green book that you're watching are the corporate tax law changes and what else? So what was interesting about this Green Book, Kristen, is that normally, if you look back, President Trump didn't do them. They made a value judgment not to. Uh, President Obama, you know, there were things in his Green Book eight consecutive years that mm -hmm. never were even introduced in Congress. Right. Because it was a statement of his entire vision of the tax code and Treasury, et cetera. Right. Um, President Biden's Green Book was far more narrow. You know, you recall he gave his first infrastructure speech in Pittsburgh at the end of March, and then he addressed Congress at the end of April, giving his second human infrastructure speech and proposed a series of tax policies on the corporate and individual side of the code that were going to pay for that infrastructure investment. His Green Book provided greater detail and explanation around only those provisions. So if folks were looking to what the president's policies proposals were on the campaign. There were a whole bunch of things that he was vocal on in the campaign that don't show up in this green book because they kept it very narrowly focused to the things he's currently working and proposing. And why do you think they made that judgment call to be very narrow in their green book? Because I think they're trying to bring very, I mean, it's it, it, um, it was a departure from the past tradition, but I think they're trying to be very laser focused around creating energy around the specific set of proposals he wants to see enacted in 2021. Okay. Interesting. So some of those proposals, are there, are there new things that we, that you're watching as part of sort of the reconciliation package or from what, you know, other people are saying, you mentioned something about the comment that Wyden recently made. I mean, are there, We've heard it, we've talked at length about, okay, there's, they're gonna look at the capital gains tax rate, the corporate rate, the individual rate, possibly state taxes. Are there additional things that are being added to that sort of soup of possible changes that we should be focusing on? So um, all of our NFP audience are Fonseca members and we've got deeper digests into the detail than you and I will be able to go through today. You can access it through the website. If you got any troubles ask, accessing the website, let us know, we'll fix it. The um, the green book was focused on the corporate proposals on the individual side of the code. It had the higher marginal tax rate, 
uh, to 39.6. It had the cap gains and step-up changes. It notably did not include any proposals on the estate tax. It did not include any proposals on inside build-up taxing capital gain or taxing death benefits. It did not include anything on non-qualified for comp or coli bully. Um, there are, though, a series of proposals in Congress around those things. So not home again. You don't. You don't uh, your deal isn't done uh, on the first offer. Um, it's done when the negotiation is final and everybody signs the the finalized paperwork. So uh, we're still active in those areas, um, but those are the things we're tracking. The the other one that was interesting in there, and it's a it's a tax geek political geek uh, nugget, Kristen, but highly relevant to the planning process. Um, there's been you know, there's a lot of energy around the not paying the fair share. Since last we were chatting, the ProPublica story came out with all the billionaires' taxes. Um, there is a proposal in the Green Book to establish what effectively would be a federal rule against perpetuities. For our law students or lawyers in the crowd, everybody remembers a life and being plus 21 years. Uh, for those who aren't, sorry for the legal joke. Um, <laughs> The uh, the Biden proposal is a 90 year cap on um, on dynasty trusts. But the interesting thing is, and this is why it's a tax like it's a nugget. Um, it's set against a start date of 1930. Oh, so and the reason yes. they've done that is 90 years or sorry, 1940 started set against the start date of 1940. 90 years from 1940 is 2030. And the budget window into which they will write this reconciliation where all the math has to add up is 10 years from now. So it's a, ah. and it's a deemed realization. And so they're basically saying anything, any unrealized gain that has not been taxed from 1940 inside a trust to 2030 would have a deemed realization by that year. It's mm. a lot of income in one year, yeah. Well, and totally fundamental changes to planning process that's been in place for decades. Right. Um, I mean, that's, you know, we've talked about the cap gains proposal and lots of people like to analogize it to 2010 when we had temporary repeal of the state tax and carryover basis or 1978, 79, when Congress tried to carry over basis. What's different and important to remember about the Biden proposal is it's not just carryover basis. It's deemed realization. Right. Without actual realization. Yeah. It treats death and gifting and mm -hmm. gifting as a realization event. Right. So whether you sell it or not, you owe the tax. Mm -hmm. That, Again, that's going to, yeah. Oh, the mind reels. <laughs> <laughs> All of the implications. I'm going sideways. <laughs> we have to, podcast is going to go sideways on us and we're going to go down a rabbit hole. But that's really an interesting quite fundamental change that, I mean, hate to say it, but just brings us back to life insurance, right? Absolutely. Put it even life insurance. Well, I mean, some of these proposals will fundamentally change the liquidity need that people have. Mm -hmm. um, but we at Finseca try to, to hoe a narrow and consistent lane. We want consistent policy that allow our, our members and their clients to plan um, we definitely want to be in the pigs get fat rather than the hogs get slaughtered kind of category around all this stuff. And so it's important from our perspective to try to, or to definitively be consistent and to try to, 
um, get enough lawmakers, policymakers to see the virtue of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And so just so that you and I don't get a bunch of calls, that is just a proposal that is part of the Green Book that has not been written into any sort of bill or in any, it's in conversations, but it's not a thing that. That's right. It's, it's a, it's a proposal. There are some bills written by, you know, the, there's a bill out there. Yeah. You know, we focused a lot in the past on the, for the 98.9.8% uh-huh. Senator Sanders, like there's a variety of these proposals exist in different formats in different places, but the green book is the opening offer. The next major relevant document will be when Chairman Richie Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, when he introduces the partisan um, reconciliation tax bill Uh in the Ways and Means Committee, that'll be the next like major item for us to look at. And we will spend a lot of our time with our ambassadors and our advocates working with Chairman Neal and other members of the Ways and Means Committee, the Senate Finance Committee, to try to get the best product on introduction uh, to limit the number of fire drills we have to do after that. Okay. Yes. Thank you. That's a great reminder because I can just imagine people saying, what am I going to do with my trust? So. No question. Yeah, absolutely. So just to do a little bit of a pivot, I know you guys also, as Finseca, you have a bit of a broader footprint now, and you're also really starting to do advocacy at the state level to, again, take that idea of consistent policy and financial security. I mean, we've really been focusing on the federal level this far in our conversation, but talk to me and talk to me a little bit about what you're seeing at the state level, some of the things that are happening or that you're, you're watching that could be coming down the road. So I think there are three big work streams as we sit here end of June in the state advocacy um, area. One is Fonseca and the rest of the industry are really focused on uh, encouraging the adoption of the NAIC's annuity best interest model. We're up to 15 states as of today who've adopted it and 10 will be if have uh, those laws in effect by September of this year. Um, so that work is very positive and we're continuing that. As I think most of our uh, viewers will know, uh, New York's 187 rule, which included life insurance, the only state in the union to have done so, was struck down by uh, their middle court in New York uh, about uh, 45 days ago. And uh, the New York DFS, Department of Financial Services, has appealed that decision which comes with a stay of it. So New York 187 remains in effect until that appeal is resolved with the highest court in New York or uh, New York DFS writes a new rule. And because they were struck down for vagueness, the cure is pretty clear. They can cure with specificity and that can go that can go well for us or that can go poorly for us. So Finseca is working with our members to, to identify what are the ways in which Uh, we would like to see New York 187 improved because it really has a dramatic effect, has had a dramatic effect on the availability of products and on um, the financial security of New Yorkers. And, you know, the producers I talk to, if they're able to forum shop a client to any other state in the union, they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Carriers I talk to, a bunch of them have reduced their product footprint to a bare minimum because they didn't want to take the PR hit of having left New York but they're not really actively selling things. And it's that middle market 
and that mass affluent market that is affected because they can't form shop as well. And it's just not worth it in some context to write some of these smaller policies. And so it fundamentally impacts. I mean, I had a, it was a brief detour, but um, there was a, a gentleman in, in DC I worked with for a long time who just passed away this year or in the last two weeks at the age of 43, leaving three small children. And God bless him and his family, but the obit included a GoFundMe page. Oh, wow. And I see this all the time and there's absolutely no reason for it. Mm-hmm. There's just no reason for it, but it is tragic. Um, and it's a place where all of our NFP members and partners financial, like this is what we do. This is the value. And we have to work on rules that allow us to extend that value and that protection and that holistic financial security to more people. I mean, that's, um, I'm a bit emotive about it, but it's just, it's just, it doesn't make any sense. And they've raised a hundred grand in that. Right. Like it's not, it's just, it's just crazy. And yet that won't be, that's a ton of money to do in two weeks or whatever, but it's not going to be enough to care for those three kids. Now, hopefully they've got other planning in place, but um, they're really, how that that standards of conduct of conduct stuff and DOL is talking about rewriting the five part test on the fiduciary rule. They're talking about adjusting the exemptions the industry uses that allow comp to be paid for products under that line. And of course, we got SEC Reg BI out there. So there's a lot more work coming in that area. Mm-hmm. One other item on the state side, uh, and uh, that that I should flag is Washington State passed a. Um, long-term care uh, mandate payroll tax state-run program bill um, that if you people, residents of Washington don't have acceptable long-term care coverage by November 1st of this year, they are opted into the state-run plan. Um, I'm not yet an expert on it, but we're learning a lot more about it because all our Washington members say it's almost all they're doing right now. Um, to give you just a simple view of how this program is flawed, it has a lifetime benefit of $36,000, which of course, you know, in a lot of cases wouldn't cover a year of benefits. And it's sort of a complete crowd out. And what's worse, it's bad enough that it's happened to the people of Washington. So the industry has got to wrestle with that. But there are 12 other states, including California, that are looking at this problem and how to solve it. And Washington's their current model, which we want to definitely prevent from becoming a national trend. And I'm guessing that it's not a portable policy. You have to be in Washington when you need your $36,000 and hope you, you know, only need it for nine months and then you're out. That's right. It is not portable. So if you live in Washington for and pay taxes there for 40 years and retire to Arizona or Florida, you are out of luck. Right. Yeah. So, and you know, but I'm assuming you're working with the various states to try to get a different version because it makes sense. People need long-term care coverage, but they need something that's actually realistic in, in you know, the world and what they could, are likely going to need in the future, right? That I mean, that's that's where we're headed. That's what we're trying to resolve and, and explain what's really necessary here. I mean, it's a it's a great headline. Um, you know, oh, we're tackling this big important public policy problem, but the solution is is not very well design, divine or designed from our perspective. So we got to figure out what's a. I mean, we think the private market does this reasonably well. I mean, the innovations with the hybrid life products and everything else, like there are lots of solutions available to people, um, but there's no doubt that there's more interest in this and it's driven 
by a real concern over their constituencies, but also because the Medicaid budgets across the country are getting gobbled up by long-term care costs. Um, and so it's a real public policy issue today, much less in the future. Mm-hmm. So in our last few minutes, I was just thinking about sort of public policy issues and the conversations that you and I have had in the past about financial crisis and crises and the federal government needing to step in and sort of bail people out, the last one being, you know, last year. And you you said that you anticipate a real focus on retirement planning. Can you just sort of give us an update on that? Has there been movement on the federal level in terms of retirement planning? There has. This is, I mean, despite the partisanship, and it is rank at, at many levels, um, bipartisan interest in solving the retirement planning problem is amongst the brightest lights this Congress. Uh, Mr. Neal, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee, and Mr. Brady, the ranking member, our friend from Texas, uh, have authored a bill uh, that received unanimous support from the Ways and Means Committee about uh, four or five weeks ago. So that is now ripe for the House floor. Uh, We did our annual event with Senator Ben Cardin from Maryland, who with Senator Portman is one of the longtime multi-decade leaders around this policy area. They have recently reintroduced their bill, now called Cardin-Portman instead of Portman-Cardin because of who's in authority. Um, And uh, Senator Portman, or Senator Cardin, excuse me, told us last night he anticipates a hearing on that bill in the Senate Finance Committee towards the end of July, and he hopes to have something on the floor in the fall. Now, Senator Wyden told me three weeks ago that uh, it was more likely that that would come uh, come to the floor and get resolved in 2022. Uh, but we think it's very ripe for for action in this Congress. And again, as FinSecond members, we've written uh, sort of detailed uh, reports of the provisions around annuities and small businesses and lifetime planning and a whole series of other pieces that are in both the House and the Senate bills. And those are available to our members. Great. Well, thank you. So, and, you know, thank you for reminding us that uh, you have a wealth of content on the Finseca website. You and I just barely scratched the surface, right? So, but, you know, there's a lot of content available, right? That's right. And it's all there on demand, uh, audio, video, and the written word. And, uh, you know, like we're super happy about the NFP Enterprise uh, membership deal with Finseca. So all of you are members and we're very excited about that. Uh, we're here to serve you. So both in the advocacy and in the content, if you see something or don't see something you need that you want to have, please reach out to me and my colleagues. Uh, if we can produce it for you, we're glad to try. Well, that's a great way to end our, our session today. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise, Army. And I'm sorry that your magic eight ball was not working as well as we would hope it was. <laughs> well, all joking aside, you can be glad that's not how I rely on giving you my advice, counsel and advocacy results. Yes, thank you. That's a good point. <laughs> That's what the crystal ball is for, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. This is a different different uh, spherical object. Right. <laughs> thank you so much, Armin, for your time. Thanks, Kristen.